It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to a special edition of Money Talks where we've done some summer stock-taking and look back over some of our most popular items of the year so far. And in case we've missed anything, please let us know. You can find us on Twitter, at Economist Radio, or email us at radio at Technology leaders have been calling on the United Nations to ban the development and use of killer robots. Back in April, we had a cautionary tale of our own. We discussed a working paper which concluded that between 1990 and 2007, each industrial robot added per thousand workers reduced employment in the US by nearly six workers. Industrial robots are most commonly used in the car industry. Our free exchange columnist in Washington, Ryan Avent, discussed this age-old problem with Philip Coggan. I think the difficult question, um, and this was also an issue in the 19th century, is how good a job are we going to be able to do preparing the workers who are displaced by robots to take the new employment opportunities that are created? Uh, And so in the Industrial Revolution, we uh, were were pretty effective in uh, moving people to the cities where new jobs were being created, in giving them education to help them fill those new jobs. and in in smoothing the adjustment in in that way. And even so, it was still a difficult adjustment, and that's why the Luddites were smashing their machines. I think it's going to be a lot harder now to to do all those things. A lot of the cities where the jobs are being created are very expensive, and so people don't want to move there. Uh, And then also, you know, someone who's been displaced from a manufacturing line can't really go and get a necessarily get a degree in computer engineering in order to program the new robot. So there are going to be a lot of challenges, and in some ways I think it's going to be much harder this time. Is the issue, though, that... We think about robots in the wrong way, that they only replace people. They can be used to complement people as well, can't they? People can use robots as part of their daily work and make them more efficient. That's certainly true. That's absolutely true. And that's why I think, you know, the idea that that some people have, have mentioned, Bill Gates mentioned this a while back, that we should tax robots is not really a good one because there are going to be cases in which the use of robots helps people do their job more effectively, allows their, their productivity to rise and the pay that they're able to earn to rise. And we don't want to discourage that. So it's a question of sort of, you know, how much of, of the sort of complementary sort of work are you getting and how much uh, substitution is there going to be? And I think, you know, the, the, the concern is that as, as artificial intelligence improves, as the, you know, the dexterity of these robots improves, that the scope for substitution is much greater than it's ever been in the past. It's a dilemma you've written about elsewhere, isn't it, that we need greater productivity if we're to improve GDP growth. And yet the worry is that greater productivity can only come via automation, which costs workers jobs. Do you see any easy way out of that sort of dilemma? I don't see an easy way out. And I think it's a very tough one to solve. I mean, if you look at, you know, education and healthcare, the way to reduce costs in those industries is to improve productivity, which, as you say, will probably cost us jobs. 
Uh, at the same time, what we've seen in a lot of economies is uh, that employment keeps growing, that uh, it, it keeps reaching new levels. Um, but the way that's occurring is through workers accepting very low rates of pay and, and low, you know, wages that are low enough in some situations that firms just don't find it worth their while to go out and invest in these new robots. Uh, and so, you know, we, we want people to stay in work, but we also want high productivity growth. And, you know, so far we haven't really come up with a, a solution in terms of, you know, how to change the social safety net, what investments we need to make that's going to allow us to achieve all those different goals. That was Ryan Avent talking to Philip Coggan. Now, onto a segment recorded in February on what we called Clean Energy's Dirty Secret, asking why renewables like wind and solar power are putting the global electricity market into something of a crisis. Here's Henry Trix, our energy and commodities editor, on the downsides of cleaner technology. It certainly is getting cheaper. In the course of the last year or so, we've seen some um, some spectacular results from auctions in which you know, wind power in the North Sea or solar power in Latin America is actually cheaper than the fossil fuel equivalent. So in other words, it's cheaper for a government, for example, to install a solar power facility than it is to establish a gas-fired power plant. That's been one of the uh, exciting developments, if you like, in the renewable energy industry over the last year. The trouble is, is that all this power, especially in the developed world, especially in the rich world, is the result of subsidies. So we set out the rich world about 10 or 15 years ago, set out to promote renewable energy, to use subsidies to bring down costs because they wanted to decarbonise the electricity system. And that was a thoroughly good thing to have done. But those subsidies have had various effects. They've, They've pushed up electricity bills in certain countries like Germany, which has been on the forefront of this. And so that causes some some resentment on the part of bill payers. But more to the point, a little bit of renewables carries a very heavy punch. In fact, we sort of say that clean energy has its own dirty secrets. And that is basically that those investments, this this rollout of renewable energy has a big impact on global power markets. And it sort of disincentivizes investments, not just in you know, fossil fuel plants and whatever, but in renewables itself. So it's not very self-sustaining without subsidies. And I suppose you still need those old traditional forms of sources of power, fossil fuels and so on, because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, least of all here in London. Yes, that's that's exactly right, which is why one of the strange paradoxes of this sort of clean energy transition is that these subsidies now are not just supporting renewable energy, they're also being used to support fossil fuel energy as well. The fossil fuel plants can't really make it on their own because renewable energy is generating power all the time that the wind is blowing, for example. But on those moments when the wind dies down, they need a coal-fired power station or a gas combined cycle gas turbine uh, to fire up very quickly. And in order to make it economically feasible for them to do that, the government has to keep on supporting them. So it's still a work in progress. Governments need to keep thinking about the way we talk about electricity, price it and regulate it. 
on now to what may be the most unusual company in the world. Is it a bookshop, a computer server, or a film producer? Well, it's Amazon. How did it become the fifth most valuable company in the world? Here's The Economist's consumer and retail correspondent, Charlotte Howard. One of the things that's really interesting about the way that Amazon makes its investments is some of its most important projects begin by serving an existing well-established business. So Amazon, as people know, began as an online bookseller. A few years later, it said that other types of sellers could use its platforms to market their own goods. So it became a platform for other companies to sell goods as well. Amazon then charges those companies a fee, and those those new sellers become a different kind of customer. And Amazon has done this again and again with web services. It, it invested in computing to support its e-commerce business. Then it let other companies use that computing power, and it created a new source of revenue. As it's invested in warehouses, it lets other company rent space within those warehouses, and fees from those other companies continues to grow. So you see this sort of cycle where Amazon invests in something that helps itself in the short term and then opens up that service to others and creates a new source of revenue, which gives it more cash to invest in uh, additional services. And how much of Amazon's success, its personality, if you like, can be explained by that of Jeff Bezos, its founder? It is. So he, he has powerful deputies. Bezos has powerful deputies in the form of Jeff Wilkie, who runs the e-commerce business, and Andrew Jassy, who runs Amazon Web Services. As a trio, they're all quite private. But Bezos has really been the person who has driven the company forward, of course, since its inception, and he continues to be very involved. And one of the things that's interesting about Amazon is that even as it seems to morph year after year as its services continue to expand, actually its mission has remained quite steady, and it's remained that that Bezos laid out back when it was founded in the 1990s. And that is to be Earth's most customer-centric company, which seems to most impossibly vague. But it actually does describe what Amazon does quite well. That is, it invests in new ways to attract more and more customers and keep them. And its definition of customers continues to expand. Often it's its own best customer, as I said, it invests in services that serve its main business, and then it opens that service up to new customers in the form of other companies. So his mission actually has remained relatively steady, and it continues to carry the company forward. He, Another one of his favorite tropes is to talk about how Amazon is at day one, and it's just getting started. And you do get the sense that the company thinks it has a long way to go ahead of it, and investors certainly think so as well. Charlotte Howard, The Economist's retail and consumer correspondent. Another highlight on our programmes was a discussion about which pays a higher salary, big or small companies. Common Wisdom says larger companies have more to fork out. And up until the 1980s, large firms did tend to pay more than the smaller ones. But that state of affairs has reversed itself since. Why? Nick Bloom, a professor in the Department of Economics at Stanford University, has been looking into it. It turns out what's called the large firm pay premium has collapsed. It's fallen by about two-thirds. So to give you some rough numbers, if you went from a firm with about 100 employees to about 10,000 employees, your pay would have increased by about 50% in 1980, whereas now it's gone up by about 15%. So a, a, a a big reduction of the pay premium for large firm employees. 
Well, what we see is in large firms, the people have really lost out, the people middle and lower incomes. So within large firms, we've seen a big increase in inequality. So everyone, everyone's heard of the top end. These are the, uh, you know, the famous CEOs and CFOs who are making massive pay packets on Wall Street uh, and you know, the city of London and the, you know, around the world. But what we also see is the middle and lower ranked employees are seeing their wages falling. And so, of course, there's a big gulf opening up. In our data, we see the top employees in 10,000-plus firms in the U.S. have seen their wages go up by about 150% since 1980. And the bottom 10% has seen them fall by about 20%. So a huge gap has opened up, and that's far greater in large firms than in small firms. And the bottom end collapse is driven by this disappearance of the large firm wage premium. So, you know, big firms seem to play an important role in explaining overall inequality. Nick Bloom also discussed what policymakers should do in response to his findings. This is a very hard thing to deal with because what's going on is market pressures and pressures that actually policymakers to some extent have pushed onto firms because all the regulation to make managers more responsive to shareholders and do the best interest of shareholders has actually meant that they've looked for cost savings, and cost savings has meant cut wages. So the way to get around it is try and help people whose wages are low to earn more by improvement in education. But, you know, the the best single solution is training for people in the labor force now and improving education. What we want to avoid is, you know, large shares of the workforce having left school at, say, 16 that really struggle to earn more than, you know, minimum wage. Professor Nick Bloom. In January, we spoke to Kenneth Rogoff, an economist at Harvard University and a former chief economist at the IMF, about the curse of cash. In his latest book, he argues that we should reduce our dependency on cash. But why does he argue that we should not get rid of it altogether? Well, I think there are fundamental points like privacy, um, when you have weather-related problems and you have power outages, which we're very familiar with in the northeast United States and uh, other, other kinds of problems. I think we actually need a physical currency forever. Even when there's a digital central bank currency, we're going to want to have a physical currency. Now, the, the day may come when even that is not private, when they're taking your photo as you're making the purchase. Um, I explain in the book how the day is likely going to come when cash registers can instantly read serial numbers. They can match it up to your photo. You can tell the story in other ways. But I think for, uh, we want to preserve uh, having a physical currency. What we want to do is strike a better balance. I think we, if we got rid of large denomination notes, and there are other approaches, but if we got rid of, rid of large denomination notes, it would allow ordinary people to do pretty much everything they want to do. You can carry $100,000 in $10 bills in a small, modest-sized briefcase. You can you know, buy whatever you need and make it more difficult for people hoarding really vast sums, evading sales taxes, evading regulation. You certainly hear these stories coming out of the periphery countries in Europe where the authorities find 60 million euro on a company and they find out that all the suppliers are paid in cash and everyone's paid in cash and no one's paying the VAT tax. It's a, it's a very widespread problem, and we're n- I'm not even talking about crime. But I, I think you can strike a balance. There are other ideas. You can limit the size of cash transactions, as many European countries have done. You can wire cash registers, as Sweden has done. I- I'm looking for a light-handed approach. 
I'm sort of surprised in the response to the book how many people don't even turn to page one and assume I'm getting rid of cash, which I think would be uh, foolish. Kenneth Rogoff. Finally, let's talk silicon. Sand is the most extracted mineral in the world. It's an essential input for concrete, asphalt, glass, electronics, and it's used in the fracking process. In March, we highlighted the increasing scarcity of sand, with demand outstripping the rate at which it is naturally replenished, and how this has led to a burgeoning trade in illegal mining. I asked the economist Rachana Shanbog, where are the hotspots for this illegal mining? Well, Simon, we're seeing a lot of illegal mining in India, where there's a really rapidly growing construction sector. And because regulations aren't enforced well enough, the returns to sand mining appears more and more lucrative. Not a week goes by without reports of um, the goings-on of the sand mafia in India. Presumably, they're dealing mainly with Indian customers. But globally, where, where is the big demand for sand? By far, the, the largest consumer of sand is Asia. And in particular, over half of all the sand consumed goes to China, where uh, construction activity is particularly rapid. The Chinese government says that it's built about 32 million houses and about four and a half million kilometres of road, and all of that requires sand. And growth in India and the Middle East isn't far behind either. And are, are all sands alike? Is it one unified market? Surprisingly, no. You might think that because there are deserts covered with sand, sand is an abundant resource. But desert sand is actually too fine to be used for commercial purposes. I mean, it's hard to believe that the world is really running out of sand. What evidence do you have for this? Well, um, the case of Singapore is a really interesting example. Uh, Singapore has expanded its landmass by about over 20% since it became independent. And that's largely by dumping vast quantities of sand into the sea. The problem is that now neighbouring countries will no longer export sand to Singapore because islands have been vanishing and coastlines have been thinning. And so Singapore has had to start importing sand from further and further away and even make plans to start reclaiming land using other techniques that are less sand intensive. So there are techniques for land reclamation that don't use sand. What substitutes are there in other industries? There are actually plenty of substitutes for sand. Mud can be used for reclamation instead of sand. Asphalt and concrete could be recycled. And straw and wood can be used to build houses. And it's likely that as sand becomes more expensive, builders start shifting towards these other substitutes. And that, in advanced countries, is being helped by regulation. The problem is in that in developing countries, regulation isn't very well enforced yet. That was Rachana Shambog, and that's all for this special episode of Money Talks. Check out the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.